Radio Mano Papachango. This is Mariana from Barcelona. I'm a Latina struggling uh, with European systems and moving different countries to do what I love, um, which is treat and help people with borderline personality disorders and suicidal problems. And um, I just came back from Switzerland where I met 12 wonderful young clinician PhD students that are working also in making this a better world for people with um mental suicidal problems and there were three very inspiring professors who <laughs> on their free vacation time they just came to teach us and encourage and inspire us to continue in this path despite the struggles of <laughs> having to have like three different jobs to keep on research and fighting for visas as non-Europeans and tons of things but um wanted just to use these times because I wish um, there could be more that I could do to say that uh, there is a way outside of suicide and we young researchers are doing our best to improve treatments for those who we haven't reached or those who treatment previous treatments has failed and um, I know um, that this world needs more kindness I have been desperate and hopeless and for my piece of pain that I have experienced I can say that still even if it's tough there is a way to build a life worth living so keep strong uh, keep smiling and yeah give kindness to others you never know what fight they're going through and you can make a difference through what you do this day for them hugs to everybody Damn, Mariana, thank you so much for that. That's really uh, a beautiful message. Um, and I want to apologize to people who have sent in messages because I sort of lost the plot on playing them for a while. And um, part of the reason is that when I came to Colorado and started um, working out of the house, I switched to a different computer. I switched to my iMac. And... Um, I kind of made a mess of the folders that I had these uh, audio snippets in because I started using them from this computer for having forgotten that I was downloading them to my laptop. And then when I realized it, 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 it was like, I didn't know which ones I'd already played. And, uh, it, it was just a fucking mess. And, uh, I am not like a super organized person, so uh, I'm sure there's a very easy way to sync folders across different computers, but I, I don't know how to do it. And um, so I sort of just let it slip. And then the other day, uh, preparing to leave Creston, I was like, all right, I got to like deal with these audio things and um so i i went through and started lining them up by date 
um, and trying to figure out which ones were missing from one folder and not the other, which means that I've already used them. So then I would delete them from this folder and then I was listening. Anyway, I listened to a bunch of them and holy shit, these are awesome. These are so awesome. And I just felt like such a shithead that I've got, I don't know, 70, 80 of these things that I haven't played. And some of them have been languishing, no doubt, on my hard drive for a year or more. And when I think about the people who sent these in, wondering why I haven't played them, uh, thinking, you know, it wasn't interesting enough or, um, you know, whatever, that, that, that it was some sort of reflection of, uh, of me not liking it or not thinking it was worthy of the podcast in some way. I, I just feel like a total shithead and I'm sorry for that. And, um, so I am going to play them and please forgive me if I play one that has been played in the past because I don't think any of these have been on before. But as I said, I don't know, because the thing is, people send them in and basically normally it just says like Chris to MP3 or my memo M4A or uh, you know, TS M4A new recording M4A. So they're not, um, you know, they're not generally uniquely named. So I have to listen to them to know what they are. Um, but in any case, Mariana, thank you so much for your message. Thank you for the work you're doing. And um, you're right. Uh, there is a way. There's always a way to find meaning and maybe not happiness. I was going to say happiness, but I think happiness is overrated. Um, as I've said before, beyond a certain age, I think you're never entirely happy or entirely unhappy. You're just sort of always somewhere um, juggling both of them and, uh, you know, trying to manage, manage the unhappiness or the grief or the sadness or the loss. Um, and focus on the happiness. It's, it's interesting getting older, um, because your life becomes populated with more and more dead people. Um, and I don't, I don't just mean friends or family. In fact, I, I mean, primarily not friends and family. I mean, um, you know, significant figures in my life, uh, you know, are probably 10, 20, 30 years older than me. You know, when I think about musicians uh, that I have been influenced by, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Prince, Tom Petty. It's just amazing that they're all dead. You know, I listen to this music regularly. And to think like, ah, oh, George Harrison is gone. Um, you know, and, and even the ones who aren't dead, they're fucking old. And these are people that, you know, in my emerging consciousness as a 10, 12, 13, 14 year old, these were young, vital Mick fucking Jagger, man. Mick Jagger was, you know, in his early 20s when he came 
into my life in some way. And I, you know, and that was only 10 years older than me. And um, Mick Jagger's still alive as far as I know, but uh, just barely. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, it's just weird that um, these figures, you know, writers and, um, you know, and, and it doesn't count the ones that were dead a century ago. You know, it doesn't bother me that, you know, fucking Nietzsche is dead. Um, but the ones who were alive when I was young, who now aren't, that's the group that's growing and, and gets pretty big and starts to change your perspective on life. Um, those of you who are my age or older know exactly what I'm talking about. And those of you who are younger will figure it out soon enough. Here's another intro snippet. Hello, Dr. Chris and all the fellow tangentialistas. Uh, my name is Rick. I'm out here in St. Helens, Oregon, about 100 feet up a tree with a cat named Stella, who's been up here for a week. She's been stuck. She's kind of pathetically meowing. Anyway, um, I get cats out of trees and do tree work, and I love driving around, uh, listening to the podcast. There was an awesome one on my way out here about interspecies communication um anyway keep doing what you're doing and i hope to see you somewhere on down the road bye you see what i'm talking about now this guy recorded an intro in a tree (laughs) literally he pulls out his phone he's up in a tree rescuing a fucking cat and he records an intro and i don't play it what kind of douchebag am i fuck I I swear, I never heard that. I don't know. I must have gotten a bunch of them that day and downloaded them to a folder and thought, yeah, listen to these later. And, um, and I never did shit came up and I never did. Uh, so my apologies, buddy. Uh, that's a fucking awesome little snippet of your life. Then sounds like a pretty cool life. And uh, yeah, interspecies communication is where it's at. It's funny. It's one of those things, this whole interspecies thing. It's one of these things that's so fucking obvious that other animals have consciousness. And yet that has been one of the biggest debates in the so-called, you know, post-enlightenment European scientific tradition you know, going back to Descartes, who claimed that animals had no consciousness and they were just automatons, you know, as far up as uh, B.F. Skinner in the 20th century, sort of, uh, you know, claiming that game theory can explain animal behavior. And by animals, he meant non-humans. Um, it, it's just nonsense. It's it's so patently, obviously false. And yet it's a debate that has been taken seriously for centuries. I don't know. I don't understand how anyone who's ever spent any time around a dog or a cat uh, can look at them and say they're not conscious and they're not emotional and they don't feel pain. It's like, come on, look at what's right in front of you. All right, I'm going to play one more of these before we get into the meat of this Roma. Hey, Chris, this is Lori. I'm up in Nevada City, California looking at the bluest sky, the greenest trees, no smoke. Happy summer. We've been so lucky so far. I just got off an electric bike for the first time and I thought of you and how much you dug riding it. And I get it. And I'm toasting to all of us having lives that's like riding an electric bike that 
when you need a little push up the hill, it just comes for you. That it's just there. It's automatic. So cheers to the big push. Thanks for all the chat. Love listening. Cheers to all the Tangelistas. Indeed, an electric bike. That's what we want in life. Put in a little effort and get crazy exaggerated reward. Um, yeah, that's what we need. That's what everyone needs and what everyone deserves. Thank you, Lori. Uh, and when you said good summer so far, I think that was last summer. And um, yeah, fires. Apparently this summer, the fires in California are going to be the worst ever. Uh, the, the conditions are really bad. So let's send some good vibes to people in California. Nevada City, I hear, is a really cool town. Uh, a good friend of mine has been spending some time there recently, and she's talking about buying a house and moving there. So uh, it's. I think it's a good place, and I think maybe I am going to go visit in the van. Uh, Grass Valley, I think, is the area. I've never been there, but I keep hearing how cool it is. So if you're still out there, Lori, and you hear this, uh, drop me a line. Maybe we'll grab a beer together in Nevada City in a month or two. All right. This episode, uh, I've been sitting on this one for a while, and um, I think I recorded it maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, maybe. And I've been sitting on it because it's, I rant about um, something that's kind of delicate. It's, uh, it's, um, an article that I read sort of talking about the so-called myth of black athletic superiority. And, um, this article kind of triggered me in some ways, uh, that made me want to talk about it, explore it a little bit. So, um, I did that and then I sat on it because I thought, eh, it's kind of provocative and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But I do think it's worth getting into this. And I hope that um, everyone understands that I'm not coming at these issues from any kind of white superiority position, certainly. In fact, what I'm kind of arguing is in favor of black superiority in a way counterintuitively arguing against a black writer who claims that black athletic superiority is somehow insulting to black people. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to get into it now because I get into it later. But I feel like we're, we're in a place historically and culturally where, you know, kind of like what I was saying about animal consciousness earlier, where we're being... Um, forced in in many cases to pretend to believe things that are obviously not true um and people are making very passionate arguments and saying things like you're not allowed to believe xyz or you're not allowed to say this um because you're a white cisgendered man so you're not allowed to have an opinion on um, you know, whether someone born a female is identical to someone who was born a male and then decides to transition to female. You're not allowed to have an opinion on that. Um, 
And I, I don't accept that. I, and I think it's really important that none of us accept that. We're all allowed to have opinions about whatever the fuck we want. And I don't think there's anything harmful about that. As long as the purpose of our opinion and opinion, do opinions have purposes? I guess that's a deeper question. Um, but if you're, I feel like people are arguing backwards from what they want to be true and they're backfilling. So they say, you know, right now it's, um, you get labeled a transphobe if you openly say that you believe there is a difference. There are differences, significant differences between a trans woman and a you know, biological woman, um, that will get a lot of people on social media very upset with you. And yet it's obvious, right? I mean, and I think by saying it's obvious, that does not mean that you're transphobic. That does not mean that you hate trans people or that you are against them having the right to transition or, or, or having legal protections against discrimination and so on. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that when you're born male, there are biological differences. Uh, and especially when you grow up male and the testosterone kicks in, I mean, there are differences. There are differences in bone density and hand size and um, in, in musculature, in, in general framing of the body. I mean, there are all kinds of differences and there are differences in the brain. Um, and again, that doesn't mean people don't have the right to transition. It doesn't mean that gender isn't and, and sexual um, preference aren't things that exist on a spectrum. They do. And, and nobody should be discriminated against for being who they are. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, someone who transitions to be a woman should be allowed to compete in the women's division of sports, for example. Um, that's sort of the most obvious arena for this discussion. A, a couple of weeks ago, I read that um, the Australian women's soccer team, the Olympic team, uh, had a practice session against like a boys junior varsity team the boys were all 15 years or or under and this was like the best women's team in australia and the boys beat them badly um you know you could say that's a one-off but it's not a one-off if you look at you know the fastest um, times in every, in 50 meter, 100 meter, 300 meter, 600 meter, you know, whatever the, I don't know what the different um, races are, the different race. They're all, the boys are all faster than the girls. Um, there's just, it's obvious. It's as obvious as, you know, a dog's consciousness. It's just obvious. It's right there, right in front of us. Um, so I think that we need to be able to say what is right in front of us. And we're in this weird time where uh, 
people are arguing so passionately um, and trying to shut down discussions um, that make them uncomfortable. And so reality is being shaped by these preferences and by the vehemence and passion and leverage of the people making the arguments rather than by the validity um, of the arguments themselves. And uh, I, for one, will not go there. I won't, I won't allow that to happen. And as long as I have this platform and the freedom to use it as I wish, I will occasionally point out these examples. And, um, you know, again, my intention is not to offend anyone. So I hope no one feels offended by anything that I'm about to say. Um, but I think it's important that we make these arguments um, rationally. You know, I got into a thing recently online with um, someone who wrote an article about the eugenics movement. And eugenics is uh, considered a pseudoscience at this point. Um, but it's really interesting because it's based upon very solid scientific and observational data. Um, eugenics is, is the study of controlling breeding so as to reduce undesirable traits in future generations and increase the frequency of desirable traits in future generations. Now, the problem is that the Nazis used this emerging science as a to give them sort of scientific justification for genocide, for eliminating gay people and people who were um, handicapped and um, the Roma people and, you know, whatever group they decided was inferior, they not only, you know, they did forced sterilizations, but they also murdered them. Now, I think we can all agree that that's fucking atrocious. But that doesn't mean that selective breeding does not affect the frequency of traits in future generations. That's obvious, right? Anyone who's, you know, seen chicken breeds or dog breeds or you know, flowers, plants, hybrids, like we do it all the time and we even do it in human populations, right? One of the reasons people go to expensive Ivy League schools is to meet other supposedly, you know, highly intelligent people and then they mate with them and then they have highly intelligent little Uber babies. Uh, you know, every, every time you swipe right on your fucking phone app you're making a mating decision uh which has something to do with consciously or unconsciously promoting certain desirable characteristics into future generations i mean this is as obvious as fucking rain and yet because the nazis used it as a justification for horrible things we're all supposed to pretend it's not real now that's ridiculous. We didn't pretend, you know, the Nazis used rockets to decimate England and we're not pretending rockets don't work. The Nazis used 
poison gas to murder millions of of Jews and gypsies and gay people. We're not pretending that there's no such thing as toxic gas, right? So the fact that people have done horrible things that are associated with a certain body of knowledge does not mean, does not invalidate that body of knowledge. And, um, so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in in this discussion. All right, I'm going to stop talking now. I'm going to play you out with a song that seems appropriate given the subject matter of what we're talking about here. It's one of my favorite songs. Uh, it's by Elvis Costello. It's called Beyond Belief. I just love the phrasing of this and the way he sings and uses his voice as an instrument. Um, I've got a, a another Roma in the works that I'm thinking about, which is going to be about songs. You know, I love to listen to the lyrics of songs and, and sort of approach them as poetry. And a lot of songs make no sense at all. Um, and in some of those songs, I feel like the nonsensical lyrics are legit and sometimes they're not. So that's that's what I'm sort of thinking about. Um, I've got five or six different songs that I'm going to use to explore that theme. So if that interests you, uh, let me know if you have a song that you would recommend for that kind of an exploration. Let me know. Uh, And if you want to send uh, an intro snip to the podcast, please do intros at tangentiallyspeaking.com. And uh, I promise I will try very hard not to get them all fucked up and confused and uh (laughs) i will try to treat them with the care they deserve thank you so much for listening to this this is beyond belief by the great elvis costello Issues with crocodile tears and a bucket full of tissues. I'm just an artist slip on the wind up world of the nervous tick. In a very fashionable harbor. I hang around until be tortured. You'll never be alone in the bone arches. Battle with the bottle is nothing so novel. So in this almost empty gin palace. Through a two-way looking glass, you see her hours. You know she has no sense for all your jealousy. In a sense, she still smiles, very sweet. Charged with insults and flattery, her body moves with malice. Do you have to be so cruel to be careless? And now you find you fit. This identical completely You say you have no secrets Then leave discreetly Gentlemen and ladies 
Well, hello there. Uh, this is Aroma. I'm recording it uh, with video. So if you're listening to this and you would rather watch it, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is pretty recent. Uh, this guy named Mike Mar, 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 M-A-H-E-R. I should probably ask him how to pronounce his name. Uh, anyway, he offered to put this together and... He's uploading um, episodes that go up now and also uh, episodes from the archives. Uh, bit by bit, they're all getting up there on the YouTube channel. Of course, uh, we have to make some edits and some adjustments, so it's, um, it's a gradual process. But I really appreciate him doing this. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things. It's uh, hopefully a win-win. We've got a revenue share uh, going on, so he's working with content I've already produced, and um, you know maybe uh, we'll make some money from it. We'll see what happens. Anyway, it's uh, if you're on YouTube, just search Chris Ryan. That's that's the channel. Uh, okay, so I just wanted to talk about a couple of things that uh, have sort of been percolating in my mind recently. I, first thing I wanted to do was to expand on what I started talking about in the Robert Wright episode, uh, 469, the last episode that went up, um, where I was talking about, you know, some of the things in life that um, I don't necessarily talk about on the podcast, but that are not ideal. And this whole idea that we have very partial understandings of anyone's life uh, if it's coming at us through any kind of <clears throat> media filter, even if it's just uh, social media, you know, like a, an Instagram feed that just accentuates all the good things. Anyway, I was talking about relationships and how disappointing it is when what you think is one kind of relationship turns out to be another kind um, of relationship. You know, when you think uh, someone is a, a true friend and then something comes up, whether it's something very simple like, um, you know, you move to different places and so staying in touch requires a little bit of effort and it turns out that, uh, you know, your friend is not willing or able to put in that effort. That feels like a rejection, a sadness. Um, or when it turns out that the basis of your friendship w had more to do with something that, um, some perceived value, perhaps, or, or some uh, 
some angle that the person had that you weren't aware of. And, and you know, come on, people deal with this all the time. So I don't mean to say this is any kind of a situation that's unique to me or anything. I, I really just wanted to talk about how the confusion over what a relationship actually is leads to a lot of um, unnecessary suffering. Um, one area where this comes up a lot is in sexual relationships, where I think because we live in a culture that encourages us to believe that sex and sexual desire and attraction uh, are really the same thing as love, which is total nonsense, but we're really encouraged to believe that, uh, it can be really hard to disentangle those two things and to recognize that sometimes you have a relationship with someone that is uh, erotic and sexually charged and not love, and that love, that kind of romantic love will never actually be a part of it. And of course, another aspect of this problem is that we think of love as being one thing and we don't really think about all the different forms of love, different manifestations of love. So, you know, I, I think about women that I've had sex with that I loved, that I loved as people. And honestly, it would be hard for me to have an ongoing sexual relationship with someone that I didn't love as a person. But that doesn't mean that that relationship was necessarily going to ever evolve into a partnership kind of relationship. Uh, you know, sharing our lives, living together, meet my mom kind of thing. Uh, and I started to get very clear about that in my 30s. But I, and that really uh, was very helpful for me. And I, I think a lot of the problems that people run into it involve not distinguishing the different kinds of love that they feel. And then not communicating that clearly to people. Um, I think mostly we don't communicate it clearly because we just don't understand it. It's really hard in this social setting to uh, think through these things. Um, to think through the fact that, uh, you know, I really enjoy being with you. We have great sex together. We have good, you know, the pleasure is awesome. We we connect on that plane. Um, but uh, we're never going to live together either because, you know, you're married. Uh, I'm married. You know, one of us has a pre-existing relationship that precludes that. Or... You know, for me, it would be really hard to to be with someone if I didn't like her taste in music, for example. Like if she listens to shitty music, oh, that, yeah, that's kind of a deal breaker. It's a deal breaker in a relationship sense. It's not a deal breaker in a sexual friendship sense. Uh, 
you know, and, and when I say shitty taste in music, I'm, I mean other things, right? Like, you know, just incompatibility. Someone doesn't like to travel. I really like to travel. Someone doesn't like uh, spicy food. I really like spicy food. Someone doesn't like world music. I really like world music. Um, you know, we shouldn't live together. It's not going to work. It's not going to be happy. You know, she wants an expensive uh, house on the beach and I want to live in my van. Yeah, it's not going to work. But we can be friends and uh, we can have a great sexual friendship as well. So, uh, you know, th- these things... I think it's important to be able to distinguish all these different things. And when we do that, um, I think there's a lot less disappointment and sadness and um, a lot fewer relationships that really shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't exist. I think a lot of people get married because they really like fucking each other. That's not a reason to get married. That just means you really like fucking each other. And that's great. And that's what it is. Uh, And let it be that. But just because you have a good sexual connection with someone does not mean you should live with them. Definitely not. That's a whole different set of criteria. That's like, you know, I don't know. It's it's like uh, taking a job because you really like the building that you would work in. Like, no, that's not why you would take that job. I mean, it's cool if you happen to have a job you love and it's in a building you really like being in, then that's great. But the building is not the reason you take the job, right? Uh, it's a secondary issue. So that's... Uh, I don't know. I feel like I didn't really make that distinction. I, I talked about the disappointment of, of you know, how I misunderstood some relationships. And then when the reality came to the fore, it was disappointing, uh, you know, and how you sort of go through that a lot in L.A. with producers and, you know, all these people who are very, um, you know, their whole life revolves around the audience, it's like when there's no audience, they kind of disappear sometimes. Um, and and again, not I'm not talking about everyone, and I don't mean to be throwing shit at anyone in particular. Just you know, as I've moved away from LA, and I look back on that, and you know, I see that there are some people who, um, you know, continue to be people, and then there are other people where it's like it's all about the audience. It's it's um it's strange and and sad and weird um yeah anyway so i don't really know what the hell why why i'm talking about all that um the other thing i wanted to to sort of discuss a little bit is this article that i read a couple weeks ago it's an article about um i think i mentioned it on a previous podcast the the headline it's in the guardian the headline is, as March Madness rolls on, so will the myths of black athletic superiority. Um, and the article is by Reagan Griffin Jr. And um, the subheading, excuse me, the subheading is, 
black sports stars have collectively achieved what they have because society presents them with few other options. It's a really strange article um, because the argument that he's making is that, and he makes it in a very aggressive, uh, sort of dismissive way, like anyone who disagrees is a fucking idiot. Um, but the argument that he's making is that it's totally wrong to think that black athletes uh, dominate any given sport because of any innate um, physical advantages that they may have. And it's actually kind of racist to think that um, because the fact is that the reason the top athletes in several different sports are black is that they don't have other economic opportunities. And so there's a desperation that they feel uh, as kids to excel at these sports because it's like the only way out of um, poverty and, and, and oppression. And the thing that I find so sort of... Um, annoying and emblematic or or this article is such a an example of something is that the author seems incapable of understanding that two things can be true at the same time and yet he actually says that in the article so the let me explain to you what i mean the the article begins by saying, this is the first paragraph, not to toot my own horn, but growing up, I was quite the athlete. When the time came to select teams for dodgeball or relay races, I was often among those picked first, myself and many of my other black friends. In most of the schools I attended throughout my childhood, my classmates tended to be a healthy mix of all races. But at every stop, I found that black students consistently dominated the playground. So he starts off by saying that even as kids, even kids in multiracial schools, so presumably these were not like inner city, South Bronx, everybody's disadvantaged kind of schools. Um, so they're at least mixed racially. We don't know if they're mixed in terms of class, but they're mixed racially. Um, but the black kids seem to do better at sports. Black students consistently dominated the playground. Now, that doesn't mean that all the black kids were better at all sports than all the white kids. It just means that the top performers in different sports happen to be black, right? Then he says, it didn't take long for our young, naive minds to hypothesize 
It must be in the genes, right? There were clear patterns, and the most obvious explanation for our athletic success, at least to our adolescent reasoning, was that the black kids were simply built for it. The white kids believed it. The black kids believed it. Hell, I even bought it for a while. I was young and dumb. Fortunately, I have since matured. So thinking that the black kids were faster, that all the fastest runners happened to be black, thinking that that was caused by some genetic difference between those kids and the kids who weren't as fast it was stupid, according to uh, Reagan Griffin Jr. And he's matured from that dumb um, perspective. So does he think then that the reason the black kids won the race is because everybody just believed that black kids were faster? Does believing that someone is faster actually make them run faster? Or does it make the white kids run slower? I'm not sure about that. So then he continues, unfortunately, the same can't be said of everyone. In other words, not everyone outgrew this young, dumb perspective like me. These groundless theories have transcended the schoolhouse, making their way to the mainstream. Uh, and then he talks about the um, NCAA basketball tournament. And he says, we're likely to hear many of the same tired old tropes referencing the inherent physicality of some of America's best black athletes. Many people ascribe to the same sort of logic that my peers and I possessed in elementary school. He said adolescent earlier, but okay, now we're in elementary school, but on a much larger scale. If black people so heavily dominate football and basketball, they must be built differently than the rest of us, right? Um, now, he says this is a racist thing to believe. He quotes someone saying, uh, Enteen, uh, a writer named John Enteen, who wrote a book called Taboo, Why Black Athletes Dominate Sports and why we're afraid to talk about it. Quote, Check the NBA statistics. Not one white player has finished among the top scorers or rebounders in recent years. White running backs, cornerbacks, or wide receivers in the NFL, you can count them on one hand. And now, Lewis says, to call this flimsy logic would be an understatement. This is an egregiously, laughably, irresponsibly, asinine, line of thinking. While everyone is not as willing to be as openly ignorant as Antin was, uh, we find traces of the same prejudiced ideology. And then he, he gives some examples. Now, the problem is that what Lewis is assuming is that to say that there may be some genetic factor 
that gives an advantage uh, to some black athletes in particular sports like sprinting um, or jumping, uh, in the case of basketball, running fast and being able to jump are two really important things. So to say that, you know, there's something about the typical physiology uh, of people who come from Western Africa that gives an advantage to those activities. To say that is not only asinine and you know racist and ridiculous, but it also implies, according to his line of thinking, that these people don't work as hard, that they don't practice as hard. Um, and that there's no, that's his mistake, right? His mistake is in saying, you know, because someone is taller, they're likely, uh, they have an advantage in basketball. That's just true, right? That's just true. And being tall is something that you have because of your DNA, because of where your ancestors came from. People from Holland are taller than people from Spain. There's just, yes, there are tall Spaniards. Yes, there are short Dutch people. But on average, if your ancestors come from Holland, you are probably going to be taller than if your ancestors came from Spain or Italy or Morocco. That's just obvious. That doesn't mean that a basketball player who's seven feet tall doesn't work out hard, doesn't have discipline, doesn't have great ball handling skills that may have nothing to do with their DNA that only come from the fact that they really worked hard uh, when they were a kid. That So the, this is the, the mistake. The mistake is that both things are true. And to believe that one is true is not asinine. It's obvious. You know, look at the the top hundred sprinters in the world. The if you take a list of the top hundred sprinters, I'll bet I'd bet it a thousand dollars that ninety of them are black, at least. Does that make me a racist or is that just obvious? Uh, I think it's obvious. It's obvious, you know, when you look at the results. And this is like the debate that's going on now about trans women competing in women's sports. And you have people saying, making the argument that there is no physiological difference between someone who was born in a male body who transitions um, to be a woman and someone who was born in a female body. There's no difference. We all know there's a difference. Everyone knows there's a difference. To believe otherwise is to defy the obvious. I just saw an interview yesterday with a woman arguing that testosterone offers absolutely no advantage in sports. And so even if the trans woman has higher testosterone uh, levels, this gives her no advantage whatsoever over women who are born in female bodies. 
There's no difference in bone density, really. There's no difference in shoulder, uh, in, in the, the, you know, broadness, is broadness a word, of shoulders. No difference in musculature. Are you fucking kidding me? Of course there is. We can all see it with our eyes. And yet we live in this weird time where in order to be accepted and not canceled and not called out as a transphobe, you need to pretend you believe what you know is not true. This is like living in fucking Maoist China where you have to pretend to believe that Mao is God or or living in North Korea where you have to genuflect before Kim Jong-un who is, you know, obviously the most superior human being who's ever existed. Uh, you know, he shoots a hole in one every time he goes to the golf course. Like, yeah, that's all bullshit. But if you don't believe it, they'll take you out and shoot you. And that's kind of like where we're going with this. It's it's absurd. Um, you know, he, he gets into slavery. He says, some will even go so far as to attribute the dominance of black athletes to the atrocities of slavery. Um one of the most despicable transgressions uh, in American history was the genetic manipulation of black bodies by white slaveholders. This is wrongly understood by many to be a major contributing factor in the athletic dominance of Americans today. Now, it's historically true that slave owners uh, required the biggest, strongest men to have sex with some of the, the biggest, strongest women slaves with an eye toward having big, strong children who would it was they were property right so they were being treated as property and it's true that this is despicable it's true that it's horrible but the fact that it's horrible doesn't mean that it didn't happen and it doesn't mean that it's wrong to discuss the potential effects of this this was essentially a breeding program that was instituted to create bigger, stronger human beings. And the fact that it was done under horrible conditions doesn't mean it wasn't done. And it doesn't mean that it's illegitimate to talk about the potential effects of that. You know, it's like in science, there's there's this big... Um, problem around talking about some of the research that the Nazis did, which um, some of the medical research by Joseph Mengele and, and others, it was being done in, in the most, some of the most horrible conditions in human history. It was being done uh, to unwilling people in slave camps in in extermination camps um but does that totally does does our moral repugnance 
at those conditions invalidate the data that were collected? What if the data that were collected would save lives if we incorporated that into pharmacological uh, understanding, for example? Do we just cover our eyes and, and not look at what was learned because it was learned in such horrible conditions by such horrible people? That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, but that is what's happened largely. And it's interesting that that's how a lot of the medical research has been treated that was conducted by the Nazis. But their research into rocketry, totally welcome. Hey, yeah, okay, you guys learned a lot of stuff when you were building those rockets that you were shooting at London, trying to kill people in London. Um, you know what? The war's over. Why don't you come work for us now and help us build rockets to get to the moon? Which is exactly what happened. So, um, anyway, he says, uh, jokes aside, this is also a ridiculous notion, talking about the idea that some of this intentional breeding could have had any effect on the size and strength of descendants of those slaves. I don't see how that's ridiculous. It seems kind of obvious, but no. Um, Mr. Lewis contends, or sorry, Reagan Griffin contends that that is a totally ridiculous notion. He says, beyond the fact and, and this is what's this this really gets to it, right? This sentence. Beyond the fact that it feels like a blatant injustice to even attempt to grasp at any sort of positive consequence from this brutal infringement upon human rights, the claim that ancestral breeding is the primary source of black athletic superiority is unsubstantiated by both history and science. Now, look at what he's doing. This is so, this is tricky here. First of all, it feels, okay, we're not talking about what feels, you're, ta you're making an argument that there is no way that black people, some black people have any inherent a uh, physiological advantage in sports. That's a scientific discussion. That's not about what you feel. But it's clear that this entire article is inspired by feeling and the science is being manipulated and massaged and jammed in to try to support that feeling. And this is, this is why it's really difficult to respond to this, but why I feel compelled to, because I agree with the feeling. I totally, I, I share the feeling. But the feeling is different from the facts. And when we allow our feelings to dominate the facts, then we've lost touch with reality. Then we're in a situation where if you say something that makes me feel bad, you're a bad person and you need to be eliminated. 
that's a bad place to be. That's a really, really bad place to be. A very dangerous place to be. So let's let's unpack this, okay? It feels like a blatant injustice to even attempt to grasp at any sort of positive consequence from this brutal infringement upon human rights. Now, the fact that it feels horrible does not mean that it can't happen. So the fact that it feels terrible to try to, to, to see, oh, there's a slight positive thing from this horrible situation, that shouldn't determine how you view the situation. Right? You're putting your cart before the horse. You're putting your feelings before the reality. No matter how strong your feelings are, you need to preserve the responsibility to try to unpack the reality and then adjust your feelings if necessary. Don't try to make reality fit into your feelings. Um, the claim that ancestral breeding is the primary source. Now, he added that. Nobody's saying it's the primary source. And this is a typical rhetorical trick. Set up your opposition. Nobody said it was the primary source of black athletic superiority. The question is, is it a factor? Is it maybe a deciding factor um, because, you know, if you, if you have someone with a slight physiological advantage and everything else is the same, uh, then it can be an important factor. But saying that it's the primary source makes your job easier to, to debunk it, right? He says it's unsubstantiated by both history and science. And then he, he puts out one study. He says, according to a study conducted by a zoologist at Oregon State, lasting evolutionary changes in a population require around a million years to occur. Even if we assume that the forced reproduction of the enslaved was rampant in America... Um, the 400 years in which slavery existed in the United States is nowhere near enough time to produce drastic results in today's African-American population. Okay, so I haven't read the study by Oregon State zoologist Joseph Ayeda, but I am pretty confident that when he says lasting evolutionary changes in a population require around a million years to occur, he is not talking about directed um, breeding programs. Because I'll tell you what, a million years ago, that poodle was a wolf. Uh, 10,000 years ago, that poodle was a wolf. 5,000 years ago, that poodle was a wolf. 500 years ago, that golden retriever 
was a wolf. So to say it requires a million years for lasting evolutionary change to occur in a population is nonsense. Look at the changes in chickens. Look at the changes in in cattle. Look at the changes in any domesticated animal where humans have directed their reproductive activity. It's not a million years. Humans haven't been here for a million years. We've changed ourselves through all sorts of inadvertent uh, controls on our breeding, selective breeding. It doesn't take a million years. It takes a few generations. That's nonsense. And anyone who can think the least bit clearly knows it's nonsense. Anyway, so, uh, you know, I I wouldn't have even really gotten into this, except uh, at the end, you know, he says, um, ultimately, we place the idea that black people are naturally more inclined for sports. Okay, right alongside all the other tired stereotypes. There is no excuse for explicitly championing this notion of inherent black athletic superiority or complicitly perpetuating it by discussing black athletes as though their success is an inevitability, which again, that's the straw man. The fact of the matter is black athletes have collectively achieved what they have because society presented them with few other options. So he's making this economic opportunity argument saying the only reason black people do well in sports is because they don't have other options. And then he finishes by saying to believe anything else is foolish. It is the stuff of school children. And yet he begins this whole essay by saying as school children, the black kids did better on the playground. So his entire essay makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Um, And so I Googled around a little bit and I found within two minutes uh, a scientific paper uh, written uh, by uh, researchers at Howard University, which, by the way, is a predominantly black university. Uh, pointing out that 28 of the last 38 world record holders in the men's 100 meter dash have been black athletes. And universe, uh, researchers at Howard University think they know why. Oh, it was Howard and Duke University uh, working together. Um, since 1968, the world record holders in the men's 100 meter dash have all been black athletes. Now, is this because these people had no other economic opportunities? Really? Um, what about like really poor athletes from Vietnam who had no other economic opportunities or India? You would think there are lots and lots and lots of Indian people who have no economic opportunities who, you know, if running the 100 meter dash in under nine seconds or something was their ticket, their meal ticket, they'd be working on it, right? But no. I mean, these arguments just fall apart the minute you start thinking about them. Um, anyway, these these people said, now these, again, are black researchers, I, I believe, um, 
They said that uh, although there are also cultural factors at work, it all comes down to body makeup. Blacks tend to have longer limbs with smaller circumferences, meaning that their centers of gravity are higher compared to white people of the same height. Asians and whites tend to have longer torsos, so their centers of gravity are lower. These differences are small, um, and we really don't see them when we look at someone. We are only rarely struck by how long someone's legs are. But these small differences matter in races lasting less than 10 seconds. The height of a person's center of gravity affects how fast his feet are moving when, he hits, when they hit the ground. Each step a runner takes is like falling, except the athlete breaks the fall with his foot. So a person with a higher center of gravity will hit the ground faster than someone with a lower center of gravity. And then they go, go through and talk about these racial differences in uh, length of torso uh, compared to length of limbs. I mean, that's just true. And it's not racist to acknowledge it. It's not racist to acknowledge that in general, Japanese people have a different ratio of torso to leg length than people from Senegal. That's not racist. It's true. And so I feel very, um, when I read these things, uh, I feel like we're going in a dangerous direction and we need to be very careful about this. Um, lastly, I just want to say there is an article that was written by Malcolm Gladwell a few years ago in The New Yorker. Uh, where is it? I downloaded it here. It's somewhere. Uh, Gladwell. Yes. Uh, it's available. I think it's available online. I, I subscribe to The New Yorker, so I found it in the archives. It's um, Now, Malcolm Gladwell, by the way, is half Jamaican, half British, half white. So he's mixed race. And he... Uh, is a sprinter. He he raced track and field in high school and college. Um, so he's got a lot of expertise in both the racial uh, issues and the sports issues. And this article is fantastic. It's um, called The Sports Taboo. And the subheading is Why Blacks Are Like Boys and Whites Are Like Girls. And essentially what he argues in this, this article... Uh, let me find the date for you, if I can. I don't see the... Hmm, New Yorker doesn't have the date. Um, oh, here it is. May 19th, 1997. So it's 20 years ago. Uh, what he argues in this article is that the bell curves are different uh, for black for blacks and whites, the bell curves are different. So basically what he says is that for blacks, you tend to have um, dispersal at the top and the bottom. So, so some of the worst athletes are black and some of the best athletes are black. And there aren't many blacks in the middle. Whereas with whites, it's more like you have a lot of people in the middle and not many at the bottom or the top. And he compares this to boys and girls in their um, 
I believe he's talking primarily about their sort of mathematics scores. So with the girls, you have lots of girls in the middle, lots of girls who are good at math, but not a lot who really, really suck or who are really, really good. Whereas boys, it's the opposite bell curve where you have a, a fair amount of boys who really suck at math, myself included, and not many, not as many who are just sort of so-so. And then you have some super geniuses who are boys. And so when you look at mathematics, you tend to see more men. That doesn't mean men in general are better at math. It means that the very best mathematicians tend to be men. So he's saying it's a similar thing with blacks and whites in uh, particular sports that, that require uh, speed uh, racing. So he's saying that it's not that if you just pick a black person off the street uh, and a white person off the street, that they're necessarily, the black person's always going to win the race. But if you're looking at who are the fastest runners, they're probably going to be black. To me, this is a nuanced argument. This is an interesting argument. It's not an argument that comes out of a need to arrive at a particular conclusion because um, it feels right or because it'll make your friends happy. So I encourage you to read that article if you would like to. I'm going to stop talking now. Thank you for listening. This has been Aroma, Aroma 46, I believe. Uh, and if you prefer your podcasts, visual you can see this on my youtube channel chris ryan if not uh you know where to find it right where you find everything else thanks for listening